that idea of, oh, I'm going to play with your food so that, you know, I can, and I'm, you know, allowed to, if anything, it encourages resource guarding to happen even more. And again, I go back to the human examples (laughs) and I talk to people about if we were sitting at a restaurant and you had some fries and I kept reaching over and taking your fries without asking, if I kept touching the food on your plate, how do you feel about that? Right. And most people are like, oh no, like you don't get to share these fries, <laughs> especially if you don't ask first. Right. Okay. To the point where, I mean, if it was me, I love food. So I'm like, oh no, I'd smack you. Hi, welcome back to Telltale Dog, the podcast. I'm your host, certified dog trainer, Elizabeth Silverstein, and I have with me again, Kathy Madsen, certified dog trainer and behavior consultant who's on staff at Preventive Vet. Kathy focuses on helping humans and their pets build a strong relationship based on trust, clear communication, and the use of positive reinforcement training methods. Her specialties include canine separation anxiety, leash reactivity, and dog aggression. Hi, Kathy. Welcome back to the podcast. Good to be back. It's so good to have you back. So we did your trainer journey last time. This time, I'd love to focus on resource guarding. What? How would you describe resource guarding to somebody? So when I have clients who talk about resource guarding with their dogs, I always try to first put it in human terms. And I think the pandemic really brought this to the forefront of people's minds, especially at the beginning. We heard everything was shutting down and we all went and got toilet paper and fought over toilet paper and made sure we had the resources we thought we needed to survive um, and guarded them with our lives. <laughs> uh, so it, resource guarding is a natural behavior and it's also been termed possessive aggression. So you want to guard your possession, um, something that you find value in. So for dogs, a lot of times we see this towards humans, if a human is approaching something like a bone that the dog has or a chew, um, or in some cases space, if they're in a dog bed um, and they might get a little stiff and growly when someone approaches or in more severe cases, lunge, snap, or bite people who are acting like they're going to take a resource away. Um, That's resource guarding in dogs. We also see it dog to dog. Um, And this is where it gets kind of squishy with resource guarding because it is a natural behavior. It's instinctual for the dog to want to guard things that they don't want to lose. Um, And so when it's dog dog case, it can be a little tougher for people to to address and to work through. But but I always come back to the, this is natural, we do it too. Um, And so it's important to prevent it as much as we can, Um, but there are treatments for it um, that we we can do with any case, any kind of severity. Awesome. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Natural and normal. I do think so. that's something I've thought about in general with dogs. It is really remarkable to me with how humans can treat dogs that more dogs don't aggress on humans. Right? <laughs> yeah, we're expecting them to live in this human world with human rules, totally different styles of communication we as a species have different expectations and we automatically expect our dogs to live by those expectations. And I think sometimes we forget that dogs are dogs. Dogs are not humans. Um, And thank God they are as resilient and amazing as they are. Oh my goodness. Yes. (laughs) Yes. It's important to remember though, that, that they 
don't know better a lot of the time and it's up to us to show them what does work and then also be compassionate and understanding and not be like oh you're a human you should just know this and understand why this is what also blows my mind that we take a puppy and i see so many people do that here and we expect them to completely know the english language and everything that it entails it's like you're a full-grown adult when did you learn the english language and this creature is not even your species yeah and not <laughs> verbal right yeah, yeah. it's it's an interesting disconnect and so i think this is where trainers and behavior consultants come in we're kind of the translators um, and trying to help people understand, you know, why your dog isn't doing what you want. And this is how we can help you get there without causing more stress and frustration for your dog that can sometimes result in injuries and really severe behavior issues and behavioral euthanasia and, and you know, sending that dog back to the shelter, all of those things. It does come back to the communication and understanding we don't speak the same language to begin with. So let's start there. <laughs> yes, yes. I saw something recently that was talking about like how we think it's amazing when different species are friends, but we forget we're doing that with dogs. Like we're two species that wouldn't maybe it that's that would be something that another alien would like come and take a photo of if we were in the wild. Like, wow, look at that human and that dog. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. And I think it happened in spite of us humans. <laughs> oh, yeah. so. Dogs are just so resilient and so kind and so forgiving. Like for all that we do to them as a species, they're still like, yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what's so cool though about relationships with dogs is you're literally sharing your life with a different species. Mm -hmm. And Something too, I feel, especially for me, but I think everyone kind of has this with their dog is you're never more yourself than how you are in front of your dog, because there are things that I do say, act like in front of my dogs when no one else is around that I would never do, even in front of my partner. You yeah. think I'm crazy. Like I'd be like, oh, yeah. but my dogs don't judge. <laughs> like, they don't care. I yeah. talk them through stuff. I know they don't understand me. I talk them through it anyways. We're having a full long on conversation. When I'm frustrated, I'm letting them know in a very kind tone of voice. I think I very sweetly told one I was going to beat her butt the other day and my friend heard me and I didn't realize my friend heard me. And she's <laughs> like, yeah, I want to see, I want to see this happen. When are you going to beat her butt? I was like, <laughs> I've had times when in a very happy voice, I'm swearing. Yeah, <laughs> They don't know. They have no idea. And it really, I found for me, it really releases pent up emotion where I'm like, wow, okay. Very cathartic. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted to have you on to talk about this because I have encountered some about resource gardening because I've I've had some really interesting situations or conversations that I didn't quite understand and where I learned to, to dog train on at Philly Unleashed in New Jersey on a farm. And when we dealt with puppies, we didn't have a specific protocol for preventing resource guarding. We just worked with them on, you know, and if we saw behaviors, we worked on it. So the first time I really got confused about it was when I moved to Arkansas and I started working at a doggy daycare here and there was a puppy mastiff in the groups and one of the other employees said we can't have a mastiff resource guarding and she kept sticking her hand into that puppy's bowl and I was so confused and alarmed and didn't even know what to say and it's come up more and more so I wanted to do a deeper conversation on this recently with a client she started giving her very large pit bull puppy some space when he was eating and that helped a lot with his potential issues because when we hover over dogs like that especially large dogs they're just like what's going on like what's happening yeah it's it's triggering that instinct yeah so unfortunately 
the <laughs> the methods for resource guarding that are old school um, are and outdated and are fortunately becoming less and less something that trainers and consultants recommend. They're based on the idea that that the dog must be dominated, that we have to prove that we're in charge. And that comes from the misconception that dogs are resource guarding because they're trying to take control of the situation. They're trying to dominate us in some way. And one thing that I found, and it's really tough, is because the the word dominance, the dirty D word, mm -hmm. it's so misused that I think now a lot of trainers and consultants are scared of using it. And I think it's important for especially pet owners to understand is dominance really isn't at play between different species. We're already dominant, quote unquote, over dogs. We control all the resources because we have thumbs and we can put food in the cupboard. We, you know, we can not put out things to begin with. We control all the resources that our dogs have access to. So there's no, you know, conflict there. Um, but there can be dominance issues between dogs. So this is kind of where splitting it out from resource guarding against humans from resource guarding between dogs um, comes in play. But that idea of, oh, I'm going to play with your food so that, you know, I can and I'm you know allowed to, if anything, it encourages resource guarding to happen even more. And again, I go back to the human examples <laughs> and I talk to people about if we were sitting at a restaurant and you had some fries and I kept reaching over and taking your fries without asking, if I kept touching the food on your plate, how do you feel about that? Right. And most people are like, oh no, like you don't get to share these fries, <laughs> especially if you don't ask first. Right. <laughs> to the point where, I mean, if it was me, I love food. So I'm like, oh no, I'd smack you. At some point. <laughs> yeah. And it's the same thing that, that we're doing to our dogs with this idea of, well, I'm going to play with your food. I'm going to stick my hand in your face and trigger that, that fear of why are you touching my stuff? Oh, this means you're probably going to take it away. And that fear of losing a resource just encourages the body language and the response of getting stiff, starting mm -hmm. to growl, trying to tell you stop. Yeah. But since we didn't speak that language as a human, it's hard for people to be like, oh, okay, I should back off and give you some space. Instead, we try to dominate again. And all that does is it reinforces for the dog, yeah, I should be worried when you walk towards my food bowl, or I should be worried when you come and reach for my bone because that has always resulted in you taking it away or yelling at me when I try to tell you, hey, I'm not comfortable with that. And so it becomes this vicious cycle um, and it just escalates and escalates. And in really bad cases that I've seen, people have unfortunately punished the growl they've punished the warning signs mm -hmm. um so those lower level kind of signals of i'm not comfortable with this i want you to back off let me enjoy this chew you know those didn't work or they got yelled at and so then the dog decides well that didn't work last time so i'm going to skip from staring at you to biting you mm -hmm. right? and then that dog gets sent to the shelter yeah. right or you missed, uh, right? Worst case scenario. Yeah. And, and that's really unfortunate because, man, if we'd only listened, you know, and then had some compassion, stepped back and thought about it as a, what is my dog telling me? Why are they telling me this? And then what can I do to make them feel better about this scenario um, so that we don't have to jump straight to the bite, go back to the shelter and get euthanized? 
um, aspect of it. And that's where people say like, well, the bite came out of nowhere. No, you just didn't know what was going to lead up to that. Exactly. Yeah. And, and then the suppression of behaviors, you know, that, that lead up to it, because it's also funny because if I had, you know, if I could tell people, you know, all the signs, I saw them all and all you saw was the end. That's where education is so important. And that's why I think a lot of trainers, especially with prevention and working with puppies, right? Even puppies who don't have resource guarding problems, it's still important to learn the body language. It's important mm -hmm. to learn that, that communication so that you can prevent those things from happening. Even in just of like making your puppy feel safe, like the amount of times that I've told people, oh, never mind, when I've asked them if I could pet their dog and the dog tells me no, and the person insists it's okay, but I'm like, oh, nope, I'm actually gonna listen to your dog and not you because your dog's telling me it's not okay. And they didn't see it. It's like, cause way before the growl, what happens? Whale eyes, right? That stiff body language that you're talking about, the, the face muscles get tense. And as trainers, we know what to look for and we can see it. The dog's telling me, no, thank you but the average person doesn't know and that's where body language um ability is so important to be able to see that before we get to a growl like a little growl like to me I'm like okay we listen to that like it's it's all right yeah and and I'd, I'd much rather have a growl than a bite yeah 100 yeah I just posted a video on my Instagram about a dog growling at me and I, I walked it through, I was able to catch it on video. He wasn't even growling at me. He was growling at the people behind me because he was unhappy they were in his house. And ultimately at the end of the video, he just up and walks away. It's like, cool. Like, yeah. Like well, and listening to those signals that they're giving, it builds trust because mm -hmm. then the dog goes, okay, you stopped when I needed you to stop. And that builds my confidence to then maybe, okay, now I can approach you because I know you're listening. Yeah. Right? And, and so that back and forth is really important to build confidence in dogs to help them feel safe. Mm -hmm. um, so important. Yeah. Not just with you other people. Right. So once you realize it and you could tell you could advocate for your dog and say, no, actually, my puppy needs space. Please give my yeah. puppy space. Yep, exactly. Your dog's space is more important than a stranger's feelings, even though <laughs> feel like all that. the time. Yeah. Advocating for our dogs is such a huge part uh, mm -hmm. for my clients and especially women mm -hmm. I found. Yeah. Um, a lot of my coaching has been, I mean, 30 minutes to an hour of some sessions is talking with my women clients about how can you feel more comfortable standing up and saying no to people interacting with your dog? Um, because I think we're raised to be very polite and mm -hmm. kind. Um, and if we're not, we get judged very harshly. I've had, I've had people tell me, oh, you're mean. You know, I didn't know them. And I'm kind of like, okay, <laughs> like I prevented that dog from jumping on you, even though you were ignoring the owner's instructions, you know? So, so all of those things, I think it's important people feel empowered to advocate for their dog. And if at the end of the day, that person is offended that you didn't let them pet your dog, who cares? Your dog is safe. 100%. And I, I take that very seriously with client dogs. When I'm out and about, I had a client dog get very nervous and she was just shrinking back from the dog, from the sky. And I kept telling him, no, thank you. She doesn't want it. He kept approaching. So like, we got to go baby. So we just up and ran and just, just like no explanation. None of that. Her comfort was more important, especially because he was just completely disregarding it. He's like, really? She's uncomfortable as he's like continuing to reach for her. Yeah, she is. And we're going to run away now. <laughs> yeah. That, that happened to me in the parking lot of, you know, a big box store where we were working, where I literally had to shove the guy back. Really? 
shoving. And I'm like this 4'11 person, like this tiny woman shoving this guy back. And he, that's the guy who really went off on me. And I'm like, I don't care. Yeah. You know, like my, my job is to, to advocate for my client and her dog, Mm -hmm. and you will erase all of the hard work she's put in. If you keep doing what you're doing. Yes. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> I just want to bottle it. I just want to bottle that extreme confidence that they have for no reason. And I just want to like sell that to other people. <laughs> yes. The elixir would be great. Yeah. <laughs> Where does it come from? I'm telling you, no, I have to resort to like fleeing or pushing you because you're not listening. Where does this confidence? That's a whole conversation. Well, and you know, what's hard is that their intentions are usually really good. And so they don't see it as not listening. They want to help in some way. What are you going to do? (laughs) So so it is. And I always tell my clients, practice like a spiel. Have something that you've practiced in the mirror, that you've practiced telling people in your family about saying no. And like, my dog needs space. My dog needs space. My dog is contagious, quote unquote, even if they're not just to be like, I need you to back off. So just having someone practice that. Um, can help them because then it's almost automatic when it is happening. And then, yeah, turning and running away. That's usually my first option. When I'm working with my dog, uh, we're in a pretty busy city neighborhood. And, you know, I don't want him to go over threshold when he sees another dog because he's a frustrated greeter. Um, I will just, I will walk across the street and people look at me funny, but I'm like, whatever. Like, I'm just making us all less stressed (laughs) as we do this. So so adv- advocating for your dog is such a huge part. Yes, I will. I cross the street even if no dog is reacting because I, yeah, the same thing. Uh, my dogs are mildly reactive. Like they really, they're just like, oof, hello friend. And I'm like, nope, we're not going to do that. So keeping them under threshold is helpful. And I think it keeps everybody comfortable because that's what I would want when I'm walking a severely reactive dog. I would prefer someone see me walking a dog and just up and opposite direction. And so I think if we could all get in the practice of that, unless there's some communication of like, oh, hello friend, would they like to say hello? Were they cool with it? fine but otherwise let's let's just give everybody space we're in a pandemic anyways like (laughs) yeah and that comes down to management right where it's kind of like you know yes you can train you can take this opportunity of of you know polite greetings on leash with another dog if you get a good vibe but Mm -hmm. if you're not in the mindset to train it is fine to walk across the street Mm -hmm. and avoid the situation you know because dogs are learning all the time and if we're not ready to be teaching all of the time then just manage it right prevent bad behavior from getting learned in the first place especially with puppies because that's where barrier frustration happens right if you're allowing your puppy to say hello to everybody and everything when it's time right to say no they don't understand so how do we how do we build that in I did have a question for you so something I've noticed is that sometimes puppies have a hard time managing like to bring it back down to back around to resource guarding, though this is this is really good too. They have a hard time handling high value items. So, like if they're really young and you give them a bully stick, can that be too much for basically a baby to handle? And should we be careful about certain items until they get a little bit older? Yeah, I and I would say you want to be careful about certain items throughout their life, <laughs> um, and it can change throughout their life too of what they find valuable at one point versus another. Um, but yes, I, I, with my own dog, Fozzie Bear, I, there were items and I live in a multi-dog household. So I have some other kind of context that some other people might not have, 
but there were things that I was like, I cannot have these resources out because it's too much. It's too much for his brain to handle. My other dog finds it very valuable as well. And so then they're both ready and willing to escalate that situation versus other kinds of resources. My older girl is like, I could care less about that chew. So you have it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I had to manage what resources I put out. But when it comes to dog human resource guarding, Yes, there can be things that the dog is like, whoa, this is amazing. And no way are you taking this from me. Um, and every dog's different on what that is. And, and that can be that can be hard for some people because they try out a new chew and then all of a sudden they're like, whoa, I did not expect you to lose your mind if I walked by five feet away from that. So it's just one learning body language, right? So that you can manage the situation in no when, oh, I need to stop for a second. Um, and then managing the resources that are available too, to set yourself up for success. Um, that's such a huge part of all training plans is let's set this up so we can all be successful, all be safe, um, and then work from there. Because if I put a high value chew out that I already know the dog is going to be freaky resource guardy over, then I'm already setting it up for failure for myself mm -hmm. um, and setting the dog up to fail because they find it so valuable. So I do a lot of management um, during puppy phase, but again, throughout their life, especially if you're in a multi-dog household. Yeah. And it, it's, um, and it can be tricky there's and there's a lot of complexity, I think sometimes to multi-dog, um, households, if there's some like behavior issues happening, but I think too, over time you figure it out and you figure out their relationships and what they can handle and what they can't. And, um, we want to keep everybody safe. Um, of course, especially the humans and the, the young humans, but it, it, I feel like management gets a bad rap sometimes too. It does. It does. I think because people feel like they're not fixing it mm -hmm. and we're fixers and, and it can be hard too, because if you are in a home with young children or things where it is a higher risk level, um, and the consequences of management going wrong, failing it, it's hard for us to then be like, well, we'll just manage it. Right. And, and I know as a trainer, sometimes when I've, I've a recent client actually with resource guarding, I was like, well, here's how we solve it in the short term is you change your home setup, you know? And she goes, but I'm not fixing anything. I go, no, but you're, the problem's not happening anymore. Right. And that never feels like enough for people. Mm -hmm. uh, but if the unwanted behavior is prevented, awesome. Isn't that really what we wanted? And then, okay, now let's address the underlying emotion, the underlying why it was happening and then use some classical conditioning, use some great management cues, you know, for when that might show itself in the future. So, so yeah, I, you're right. Management gets a bad rep. And I think that we should be more accepting of it as, as an answer for things. As human beings, what we don't want is things to be hard and take time. I think that kind of like boils down a lot of the choices we make. And especially when you have multiple dogs in a household, you have double the um, have to figure things out and take time. And yeah. that is a lot of work. And then I think if you add children into the mix, it just, everything feels overwhelming. Unfortunately, trainers can't make dogs just sit in a corner and do nothing. Right. Yeah. Be nice. Yeah. And this is where knowing the needs of a species is yeah. so important. <laughs> They're just being dogs and we're expecting them to be humans and mm -hmm. understand why, you know, so, so it's, it's a lot of work, but I think once usually with my clients, once they see the fact that, oh, wow, I can have a couple days where this behavior didn't pop up just because I put a gate up, 
Mm-hmm. You know, that starts to change their mindset and, and it's a lot less stressful. Um, and the less stressed we are, the better we learn, the better we can do. Same for our dogs, right? So same, same kind of protocols for all of us, lower the stress and then start to address the underlying reasons for the behavior. Well, what are some cues that we should be teaching our puppies if we want to develop some good habits and avoid some of that resource guarding? Yeah, so, <laughs> well, it's not even really a cue. The first one you kind of, you know, talked about was giving space. So creating a safe space for our puppies, um, feeding them in that space and making it a house rule that no one bothers them in that space. One, it builds confidence. It lowers the stress. You're not going to trigger instinctual resource guarding behavior because the dog is just hanging out alone. Now that doesn't necessarily it's not going to really work long-term for a lot of people. Cause they're like, wow, do I have to put my dog in their crate or their playpen every time I feed them for life? And I'm like, well, let's work up to that. Right. Mm-hmm. So I like to work on cues such as leave it. Right. So turn away from that thing or look at me, you know, whatever leave it might mean for someone. That's like one of the cues that people have the hardest time defining, mm-hmm. but so leave it's one uh, off is a really good one. So, Hey, get off the furniture. When I ask you, Related to off would be go to place. So I I really work a lot on being able to move the dog without having to physically touch the dog. Um, Because again, then I can make sure that there's enough distance between me and whatever resource they might have um, and get them away from that resource um, and protect myself. Um, And then drop it is probably the big one. I think that's the one everyone thinks of is drop it. And the the best technique for drop it, I taught Fozzie Bear using this, was uh, Chirag Patel's drop it protocol, mm-hmm. which isn't about trade anymore. Because a lot of people are like, oh, drop it means, you know, I hold a treat in front of your nose while you're holding a bone or whatever. Yeah. And then I drop it and I trade for it, right? And that really is a bribe mm-hmm. <laughs> overall, because we're like, food is here to make you drop this thing. Um, and I think a lot of, of dog owners get stuck in that bribe phase. And then they feel frustrated when they're like, I need my dog to drop something, but I don't have a treat. So they're not going to drop it. Right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of cues, that's where people get stuck. So this other protocol that I love, and I'll send you the link. Uh, Ew, yes. It, yes. It's basically creating an association of they hear the word drop it and there's a treat scatter. And so it's, it's this automatic drop it and they go, oh, where are the treats? And they go, and they pop the thing out of their mouth to get the thing that's better. Um, and you, you work on this on creating that strong association. So it's almost like charging a clicker or a mm-hmm. marker word where it's that brain response of, I love that. And I automatically spit whatever's in my mouth out and run to mom or dad, because that's where the treats happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tried that with Fozzie bear and it was amazing how mm-hmm. fast it worked. And it's, I I've also found it's easier for my clients to use a lot less thinking for them. Um, and they don't get frustrated with a trade. Mm-hmm. So I, li- I love that protocol, but you can still use the other protocol, teaching your dog to trade um, and drop something on cue. Um, but that's the most common one that we reach for in our toolbox. And I love it as long as you practice and as long as you maintain it. I love that you brought it up because I, I was taught the traditional, you know, they have something in their mouth, you pop a treat in front, you're, you're marking for that open jaw. It is almost impossible to teach in a class setting. To get a dog to take something to be yes, with. yeah, almost impossible. Because as soon as that treat is there, they're like, "What are What are we doing?" You know. So, I started just doing one treat and trying to build an association with drop it and one treat. But I love that idea of a scatter instead, because usually this is emergency. Like 
it's an emergency situation. There's a lot going on. So like a, a, you're basically upping the, 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 um, the level by making it like really worth their time. Yeah. And you don't need, well, a lot of times in my group classes, when I taught them, I would try to teach the paired cue of take it and drop it together. Oh, that's but good. then when I took Fozzie Bear to group classes, he didn't want to take anything. Like, so I couldn't mm-hmm. practice drop it because he didn't have anything in his mouth. So yeah. I'm like, well, this is pointless. I'll work on this at home. And thank God I know how. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so this, this other protocol is just, you don't, they don't need anything in their mouth mm-hmm. to start with. It's just that cue association, creating a new operant response mm-hmm. to hear you. So, so I like them and, and I've used both, you know, mm-hmm. and currently, or I've just done, you know, the one protocol with my current client for resource guarding. It is the scatter. Mm-hmm. Um, and she texted me last night of like, oh my God, I tested it with a stick that he grabbed that he was super excited about and it totally worked. And I'm like, oh my gosh, science. I love yeah. it. <laughs> and bonus, he can just have the stick again, which is like extra fun. Yeah. So it's one of those things where I was like, that's fantastic. Cause she, she wasn't sure she wasn't at the point where she practiced him actually having something in his mouth yet. Mm-hmm. So to see him make that leap and for her to see, wow, like that, that really does work. That process works when you're work in their brain so that was amazing I love it yes and I love that you brought that up too because like um someone didn't say this to to me directly but to someone else saying positive reinforcement doesn't work and I've thought a lot about that and it's and I think what it boils down to is how you're doing it isn't working if it's not working because when I see in my clients of like they're trying something it's not working I made a make a little adjustment I'm just like why don't you say leave it right at this moment instead of that moment and then instantly light bulb that's the light bulb moment you were talking about right so there is a lot of technique to what we do that is so hard to explain to people in like an instagram post or even a a full blog post yeah and and the mechanics of training are so important and it's not my strong suit honestly my my training mechanics are something i'm always wanting to work on i can talk theory all day long you know, but, but doing the training is, is what I always practice on and, and trying to then transfer those skills to someone who doesn't understand the theory. So I think people say that positive reinforcement doesn't work because you're right. They don't tweak one thing, like the timing of something, or they're not using a motivating reward mm-hmm. for the dog, or they're asking too much of the dog. And the dog's too distracted, all of that. So they're not looking at the whole context of something, but it's legitimately wrong to say positive reinforcement doesn't work because if that was true, positive punishment wouldn't work. Negative punishment wouldn't work. It's literally the science. (laughs) And so we know it works. It's just how we apply it on how well it takes hold. And so that really falls on the teacher rather than the learner. Yes, which is brings me to an excellent point too that I want to make your mere presence just because you want to be is not enough for your dog to do what you're asking. I'm sorry. It's some people have some sort of innate ability that dogs are like, yes, what do you want? I shall do it. Most of us, myself included, I've had to work very, very hard at being good at what I do. My presence alone is not enough for most dogs. Some dogs are like, please pay attention to me. I love you so much, but it's still not enough to ask them to do something and for them to understand what I'm asking them to do and then for them to comply. Yeah. I mean, I don't go to work to hang out with my boss. 
Right. No. <laughs> you know, I go to work to get paid. Yeah. I love my boss, but yeah. but that's not why I go. I don't go, you know, I don't do good work because my boss then is like, that was amazing. Like, that's great. I love that. I love that. Like, ruffles your hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't work just for that. Yes. Right. So, yeah. so it's important for people to understand that and also understand dogs aren't machines, mm-hmm. you know, so it's not just, you know, you put the quarter in and then this happens. Like, no, they, they're thinking and learning and have different associations, different histories, different Mm -hmm. drives, you know, different breeds and breed mixes. We're bred for different things. Some were bred to work more closely with people. Others were bred to work independently. So they care less about what you want. They're going to go do their job. So, so it's important to know your dog. Oh, I'm reading a great book about that. It's called meet your dog by Kim Brophy. Okay. I need to put that on my list. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It talks about different breeds of dogs and it's, it's less about breed groups, kind of what we're used to from the AKC breed groups that you see mm-hmm. it shows. And it's more about like where they came from, what were they bred to do um, and how that affects their behavior. So it's important for people to, to see that in their dog and understand, and then adjust their expectations for that. And then adjust their teaching style that, mm-hmm. they're, that they're using. And especially when it comes to resource guarding, it could be genetic. It could be a genetic predisposition as far as why a dog is resource guarding, but it could not be. It mm-hmm. could be the fact that they did have their food or chews taken away all the time. And so now they've gotten more aggressive about those kind of approaches. But you could also have a dog who's never had stuff taken away show those tendencies. Could have been gotten from a breeder, could have come from a rescue, right? The rescue might have no resource guarding and the, the dog from the breeder might. So mm-hmm. it's one of those things where we can't say definitively, well, this is why. Right. Um, and so it's important to just know, okay, let's look at the dog in front of us and, and work at their level, work at their pace. I think people get frustrated sometimes too, myself included, because I've, I've, my older dog is nine and I've had him since way before I became a trainer. And I had these ideas that are still impacting our relationship to the day of like, oh, I'm the leader, I'm in charge. But also why aren't you what I want you to be? And I think all of us, dog trainers, dog owners, whoever included need to let go of why aren't you what I want you to be and more of what are you and how can I build a relationship with who you are right now? Yeah. The unicorn dog that everyone wants in their head. The perfect dog. Yeah. The perfect dog that's probably repressed and uh, has not been allowed to make a decision once in their life. Right. Yeah. It's, it's tough though. I feel you because as a trainer, you're like, well, I know what I'm doing (laughs) and I know how to raise this puppy to be what I want it to be and all of that. And then you, something happens and you're like, why I've done everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like for example, Fozzie bear, He's a pandemic puppy, but I worked on preventive measures for separation anxiety. And I worked on, on preventive measures for some reactivity. And, and I'm seeing some of those things kind of rear their head. And I keep telling myself, okay, he's at the age for it, <laughs> right? So let's just stay consistent. But inside I am frustrated because I'm like, I have done so much to try to prevent these kinds of things. And I have to take a step back and be like, oh, take a breath because he is his own dog. He's unique, stay consistent. You'll, you'll work through it and you'll love him no matter what. Mm-hmm. So, but it is frustrating. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And we also do, I think we have to go through that. And I think we, are, and as a trainer for myself, I have to, I'm, I'm only human too. I'm going to make mistakes. My dogs are going to make mistakes. And I'd rather in those moments of like, when my little one, who's a 10 pound terrier, who like 
goes on her freedom runs whenever she gets a chance. I would rather when she runs away and then when she finally comes back to me, because we've practiced it a lot, is I'm going to make it as worth her while as possible because I can't afford to drive her further away from me. She has to come to me. That's when I would do the, I hate you so much right now. Yes. So like, that's you what terrified I me. Yes. You almost died. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. That's what I'm like. Okay. I got to like, let it out a little bit. Yeah. That's also yes. where support really comes in handy. So having a trainer, you know, or having a really good relationship with your vet or, you yes. know, someone who you trust, who you can be like, whoa, I hate my puppy right now. It's driving me insane being able to share that with someone and it's almost like therapy. And I think a lot of times trainers do fill this role for people where they're so stressed with all of the things that come along with raising a puppy or bringing home a newly adopted dog that they're so stressed that they, they, and they take it personally and that they failed. And I always have to remind them of you are just human. That's such a good way to put it. And you are doing the best you can. Um, So let's just, you know, focus on one thing at a time find the success for you and for your puppy or your dog and then work from there you can't climb everest in a day right you know and if you're going to climb it you better go one step at a time otherwise you're never going to start yes one thing that i i find is really helpful for people to visualize i'm like okay you're right here right and especially in class we'll do this i'm like you're right here you started here i know you'd like to be here but please where were you what are some of your general tips for resource guarding prevention? And just adding in here that your dog is an individual, um, you and your dog are a different pairing than anyone else. So if you're having trouble, remember um, if this doesn't work for you, it might there might be other solutions. Please consult with a professional. Yeah, I always recommend connecting with a professional, um, when I, especially if you're seeing resource guarding tendencies. Um, Because again, I don't want people to start doing things that could make it worse Mm -hmm. unintentionally, and they might not realize that they're making it worse. But honestly, the best thing you can do is practice what we call classical conditioning. And what this is, is changing the emotional response that your dog has to you approaching a valuable resource. So, and and this is in a bunch of resource uh, guarding resources, (laughs) books and videos and things that trainers talk about, but you can start, you know, your puppies in their safe place, their pen, you put down their stuffed toy with their meal in it and you let them enjoy it. But then say you walk by and you toss some chicken and then you keep walking by and then you walk by again, toss another piece of chicken. So what they're learning is, oh, someone approaching my super yummy nummy over here means good things happen. Chicken falls from the sky when they're coming towards me, when this resource is here. Um, And you start at a distance. So that way you're not pushing them too far to where they start to get worried that you're gonna take something away. And then over time, you start getting closer and closer before you toss the chicken. Um, And then you get to a point where you can reach and hand feed the chicken, right? And at this point is where we anticipate the dog to look up happily and be like, oh, the chicken has arrived. <laughs> That's the emotional response I want when I walk up to my dog who's chewing on a bully stick or eating their meal. Um, and they willingly leave that resource because you're better, right? And they have associated that with you. Um, and so practicing that slowly building up to the point where, okay, I can pick up your Kong, right? And then give you chicken and then you get your Kong back to finish. Mm-hmm. Right. And just building up those things and doing that with toys, doing that with chews, the food bowls, doing that with space as well. Um, space guarding is, is a harder one, I think, for a lot of people to mm-hmm. work on. 
because mm-hmm. sometimes it's very, it changes, um, you know, whether it's the bed or whether it's the couch. And again, management can come in handy for a lot of things. So, so manage the situation and then make sure that your dog associates that approach with something amazing yeah. um, to really, to it works against their instinct, right? We're basically overloading their instinct to guard with a, no, you're actually an awesome thing, right? Mm-hmm. Take my Kong, because that means you give me chicken. <laughs> yes. So. Yeah. And it's interesting about space or like random things. So I, I loved this. Um, I didn't have her on the podcast for it, but I wrote an article about it was um, my mentor, her puppy would start to resource things like the bowl, the water bowl, but not because of the water or a dead bug because looking for control in a situation because he was in a doggy daycare and he wasn't having a good time. So he's looking for, for control in an out of control situation. So that's another fairly common thing that can happen where dogs like I get no choices and I try to equate choices with like, they have to, like a kid has to pick a cup, right? Blue or green, they, they can pick, they still have to drink out of a cup, but they get a choice. And we, as humans, we strip so many choices away from our dogs that they're like, okay, what can I control this dead bug? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get that fluidity of, of the resource guarding and changing and it's tough. Like resource guarding and daycares is a big issue because usually there's toys and some daycares have treats for the dogs, which I always, I, after working at a daycare, even taking treats to the dog park, right? I, I kind of, I just don't anymore yeah. Yeah. Um, because it can trigger things that you wouldn't normally see, you know, mm-hmm. at home because it's a different context and, oh, it's a dog I don't know. So I'm going to guard it against that one or, wow, this toy is amazing. I've never seen it before. And all of a sudden they're guarding something when we've never seen that. Um, so really setting our dogs up for success. Um, in those situations. And then, you know, understanding it's a natural behavior and here's what you do if you see it, (laughs) you know, and then here's how to approach that going forward with classical conditioning, management behaviors and cues um, that we can work in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a great point about um, dog parks and doggy daycares. I worked at a doggy daycare and then I worked at a dog bar. And the thing that gave me the most anxiety is when, especially at the dog bar, when people would pull food out of their pocket and start feeding all the dogs, I would just be in a corner like, oh no, oh no. (laughs) Part of me goes, but do they have allergies? Like, yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah. Cause it, it can go from like, they're fine to they're not fine. So quick. Yeah. Super quick. All right, Kathy. Well, that was all the questions that I had. Was there anything else that you wanted to add? I really just, you know, driving home the point that reach out to a professional for resource guarding because it can be so dangerous if it's left unchecked. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be so dangerous if it's addressed incorrectly, mm-hmm. um, with outdated methods and things. Um, so really connecting with someone. There are tons of resources out there. Mine um, is a book by Jean Donaldson. That's amazing. Um, Patricia McConnell has a great blog on resource guarding. We have a blog on resource guarding at preventivet.com that talks about kind of what does it look like? Here's what to do um, to just start addressing it correctly so that you see progress, that it's so important get informed, connect with support. Yes. And you talked about dominance and submission to Patricia McConnell's book, The Other End of the Leash has a great um, chapter on that. So good. Um, they're not dirty words. They're just often misused and they we can understand them within the proper context. So yeah, love both of those. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and do the sign off. I've got a question for you after the music. 
This has been Tell Tell Dad the Podcast with your host, Elizabeth Silverstein. Please excuse my dog's squeaky, squeaky toy in the background. I'm located in central Arkansas and my guest today, Kathy Madsen. Music has been provided by Jim Chiago of Seven Second Chance. Find more of his work on iTunes and Spotify. Stick around for some music for some final advice from Kathy. Resource garden can be kind of scary. So when you're getting frustrated with your puppy and there's things that are happening, what are some of your top three tips for getting, getting those frustrations out? Raising a puppy is frustrating. (laughs) I think the first thing I'd suggest would be to take care of yourself. So address your own stress. That might mean taking a break from your puppy, if that's possible. Um, Obviously in some cases you aren't able to, if you're raising a puppy by yourself, Mm -hmm. it's hard. But if you can find someone who can puppy sit for an hour or two while you go take a walk. And so you're, you're helping your own mental health and draining your own stress bucket, right? Because puppies add a lot of stress. That's just part of it. And that can overwhelm us. Um, So really finding a way to take care of yourself. If it's just, you know, taking a nice warm bath, going for a walk, knitting, whatever it might be where you're kind of like, okay, puppy's in the playpen. I'm going to go take care of myself. I'm going to light a candle, relax for five minutes. Um, So take care of yourself would be the first thing. The next thing I recommend is find something that you can do with your puppy that's fun and not be thinking about training in that moment. Um, That might be play. Usually play is the, the first thing I look at and Play is one of those things that humans and dogs share as something that we really enjoy. I think that's part of why we get along so well. And so find something that you can enjoy with your puppy and not have to worry about the training issues or behaving behavior issues that you're dealing with. Just find some joy in it and not worry about all the other stuff that's on your brain for that. Mm-hmm. And then the third thing would be find that support, connect with someone who you can vent your frustrations to, who can one, you know, sympathize with you (laughs) and help you realize you're not alone, um, but then take some of that weight off of you as well. And whether that's just through educating you on why it's happening, or if it's telling you, okay, this is what we need to do next. This is what we need to do next. That's so important so that you don't get overwhelmed um, with puppy racing. Mm 